when I first started working, it didn't occur to me that I wasn't being paid the same as the man doing the same job, right? It never occurred to me. And for most of my career, I discovered subsequently that I was being paid less than half in some cases than a man on my equivalent position. I was completely shocked because I thought my mother and her generation had fought that battle. Hello and welcome to the Soapbox podcast, the podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. I'm Richard Brown, a research director at Box Clever, and I'm joined as ever by the wonderful Tilly Lewis, our marketing manager. So for our ninth episode, we're very pleased to welcome Lucy Davison, who is a strategy and communication expert with over 30 years experience in B2B marketing. She founded Keener's Mustard Marketing back in 2006 Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's very lovely to be here and I'm extremely flattered to be only your ninth episode. <laughs> made it into single digits. Single digits, exactly. Yeah. You know you've made it. So we thought it'd be quite nice if you um, would like to tell us a bit about Keen as uh, Mustard Marketing, if, if that's okay. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great. Thank you. Well, what happened was I had been the marketing director of a company called Research International, which was at the time one of the sort of top three insights companies in the world, actually. And I had really enjoyed that job. And that's how I got into insights in the first place. But I had struggled as a marketing director to find agencies to support me who understood insights and who could write about it intelligently and who could, you know, create ads and communicate it effectively. And because I had struggled with that as a marketing client, I effectively decided that there was an opportunity for somebody to set up an agency that would do that. So we started very much focusing on doing marketing. Mm-hmm. And then we pivoted quite quickly to doing marketing for insights firms and to doing sort of full on insights communications for clients organizations so we now work probably more with client side organizations who need to get impact from their insights so we work with insights teams and it's a extremely specialized area so we help them articulate share spread the word internally about the about you know the insights they've got or the team or what they're doing and how they work and all that kind of stuff what was it like lucy making that decision to go from working for an organization to setting up your own thing but to, to me that feels like a really big step you know and uh, but what was it yeah well it didn't feel like a big step to me at all because prior to see i'm very old so when i started working i don't so when i started it um keen as mustard i'd already been working 20 years well 15 years probably i mean i graduated at the end of the 80s so i worked in a couple of different organizations I worked in design and branding organizations in London in the late 80s early 90s and then I was freelance so I was a freelance copywriter journalist I worked for the Financial Times I did a lot of ghost writing for a lot of branding and design companies so I'd work for myself and I was freelance when I had my kids so I was used to 
kind of doing my own thing. And the one thing I knew when I set up Keenan's Mustard was that I knew I wasn't very good on my own. I'm an, I'm an extrovert and I like other people around me and I get energy from being with other people. So I felt that I wanted to set up a company rather than just be freelance. Mm-hmm. So that was my, my main decision around Keenan's Mustard wasn't the idea of setting up a business. It was setting up a business that I wanted to be, you know, a broader company than just me and with other, other people in it. If you weren't in kind of the insight industry, what do you think you might have have gotten into, Lucy? I'd probably be a landscape architect. Very nice. So my second degree, my first degree was in was in English. So I do use that all the time and I'm very grateful to have had that academic grounding. Mm-hmm. But my second degree was in landscape architecture. And I actually sort of always wanted, quite wanted to be an architect. Um, but then when I discovered landscape architecture, I was told I couldn't do architecture because I had the wrong A-levels, which was absolute rubbish. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. What were your A-levels? Yeah, exactly. I mean, my A-levels were English, history and French. I wanted to do art, but I was told I was too academic to do art. And if I'd done art, I could have done architecture and, you know, the rest is history. So um, later in life, I had a bit of an epiphany on the bus and I thought if I don't go and study this I think I'm going to be really annoyed Mm -hmm. so I did I did it part-time while working and I got a degree in landscape but then I decided that I didn't want to work in it as a profession because I was going to be having to handle really annoying clients (laughs) and I'd be more upset about the annoying clients in landscape architecture than I would in marketing so I decided to stick in marketing sounds like a wise choice (laughs) Well, you know, if something's really close to your heart mm-hmm. and people are saying, oh, we want it this way or we want you to dig out that tree or, you know, or plant this thing and you know it's the wrong thing to do and you feel that it's really, you know, going to not work out. Yeah. It's much harder to say, you know, disagree with them than it is if you're doing it in something that you're less emotionally engaged with and you can just say, okay, fine, you can be dispassionate about it. I and a team of people at Box Clever recently redesigned our PowerPoint templates. Mm-hmm. So I can completely <laughs> relate to what you're talking about in terms of having a creative vision, mm-hmm. feeling pretty strongly, and then somebody wants a different shade of blue. <laughs> and, you know, it yes. takes, dare I say, a great man to, <laughs> <laughs> to come to terms with that and recognize that, you know what, it isn't about what you want, it's about what the client wants, albeit in this case, an internal client. Mm. But on the other hand, I can understand why, you know, you wouldn't want to do that. So having worked in various different sort of identity branding design companies, you know, I'm a very strong advocate of the creative brief and defining very clearly what you're trying to achieve and what your, you know, what your key message is going to be before you start creating anything. Mm -hmm. And then you can always go for the argument that this is, you know, it's on brief and if someone has agreed the brief, it doesn't give them wiggle room. So you get to pick the blue, right? And that makes, you know, you can sort of wrestle con- creative control of things in that way. And I find it incredibly useful to do that. I agree with you. I mean, I was being silly because actually it's one of those things where you've done something and then somebody says, how about a different way? And that insecure part of you immediately gets defensive. Yeah. But I think what was, what can be really interesting is they were right. We changed it and it was better. Yeah, yeah. And it was probably on on brief as well. But it can be dispiriting, can't it, when you want a tree in a certain place or you want a box in a certain place? I think it's similar but not with landscape because I think that there are certain, because it's a science as much as an art. Mm. 
So, you know, rerouting a driveway through the roots of your 250-year-old tulip tree and somebody says to you, that'll kill the tree, you know, because you're going to drug, dig through its roots and you go ahead anyway because you like the layout, that kind of thing mm. really irritates me. <laughs> so I just realised I really struggle with it as a career. So tell us a bit about you, Lucy. Where did you grow up and what was life like when you were young? Yeah, I was uh, I was very lucky. So I grew up in South London in Blackheath, which is a really great area of the world, part of the world. I was actually born overlooking Blackheath. And um, I was really, really lucky. I had a lot of freedom. And I mean, obviously, it was I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And music was good. The vibe was good. I had a, I just used to, you know, spend my life running around, exploring on my bicycle, loads of close friends nearby. And um, I used to, you know, go out in the morning and be told I needed to be back for, back for supper. <laughs> and I, I went to the local school as well. So I was kind of very much in that community yeah. And um, I'm still in touch. In fact, I just came back from Seattle where I was staying with a friend who I was at nursery school with. Wow. In Blackheath. So, I mean, it goes very deep. And, you know, I had a really wonderful, wonderful childhood and lots of, you know, just lots of stuff going on on the Heath, parties on the Heath, bands, local bands, kind of, you know, it was it was really nice. And what about um, your interests? What do you like to do outside of work? I, I had a bit of a problem with this because I there quite a lot, <laughs> so I sort of started jotting things down, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is going on quite a lot." That's good. Yeah. So inevitably, because of my interest in landscape, I really love gardening, and I grow a lot of our own veg, and I have a lot of fruit, and I do that, and I also love to travel. I like trying to learn languages. I love reading. I do a lot of reading. I love horses, dogs. I'm very interested in art, art history, culture. I do a lot of yoga. So I, they're all my interests. I'm quite outdoorsy person. I quite like being outside. Oh, and also, of course, I love to cook and eat. Wonderful. That <laughs> is music to our ears. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, though, in terms of travel, mm. like if we're going to the airport right now and we can go anywhere, mm. Lucy, where are we going to go? Well, for a start, it would be a train, mm. uh, if I could choose. Yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. uh, it would be a train, and I'd definitely go to Italy. I used to live in Italy. Ooh. I lived in Florence, and I spent a lot of time in Italy, and I would very much like to, I'd like to live there again, in spite of the chaos. It's just such a great place to live. So, um, La Dolce Vita. How long were you in um, Italy for, Lucy? I was just there for sort of nine months. Oh, lovely. Before I went to university, so just to, I was studying history of art and, and learning Italian. I mean, what a place to, to learn Italian. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the place to go. Yeah. You need to go where the birthplace of Dante Alighieri. Tell me about trains, Lucy. Why train over another mode of transport? Oh, I love trains. Absolutely love trains. I just find being on a train very relaxing because mm -hmm. uh, I like to read and I like to look at the landscape. It just, you know, it fits those two things together. I've had several incredibly memorable train journeys, which I really, really enjoyed. I went skiing on the train once to Zermatt. 
was before the Channel Tunnel. So I got on a train in, in Zeebrugge, somewhere in Belgium. It's sort of late at night in the rain and the dark and the mist, and it was horrible. And I woke up in the morning and opened the blinds, and I was in Switzerland, and the mountains were right in front of me, and it was bright blue sky, and it was just like, oh, wow. It's incredible. It gorgeous and I'd slept because I'm a good sleeper you see I, I'm a I'm a good traveler because I can sleep anywhere I once had what the best 40 winks in Milan airport <laughs> so I'm really good I just sit down switch off and so um I I think that makes it good for trains and I've, I've taken the train to to the west coast of Scotland the overnight sleeper out to Fort Worth well I read that there's a new a new sleeper service that takes you from Barcelona to Amsterdam yeah which heard about that yeah that doesn't by Bristol, does it? So it's. Mm. <laughs> I have to get to Barcelona first. That's true. I don't see that as a as a huge problem. My father did the Trans Siberian Express, and uh, uh, we talked about doing that. He had the uh, the nickname of of Del Boy because uh, w- whichever country he went to, he would kind of barter with the, <laughs> the the local people to try and haggle the best price at each market they went to. Often you have to. I mean, you know, haggling is a core part of culture, and there's no respect if you don't haggle. Yeah. So, uh, oh no. That. It, it seemed like quite the adventure, so yeah. Oh, I think it would have been epic. I, I really wanted to do that. I can't remember why we didn't. But um, but yeah, my favourite train ride was going to Florence when I was heavily pregnant with my elder daughter, whose second name is Florence. I wasn't allowed to call her Florence. I was annoyed. And I was too pregnant to fly. And we went to Lucca and I got the train to Florence and it was just an absolute dream. It was so nice to wake up in the morning and be rolling into... Santa Maria Novella station and it was just a dream come true so I would do that like a shot. (laughs) And when you were in Italy Lucy can you remember your favourite meal that you had when you were there? Well obviously most of the pasta Mm -hmm. but no I lived off ice cream. I discovered gelato. I used to have it for breakfast. (laughs) I used to cycle to the language school which along the Lugano which was the bit the road that goes by the Arno in in Florence and I used to cycle there and I used to go past a different gelateria every morning to try out anyway and I found this gelateria called Vivoli which was just to die for. And yeah, I gained a stone. <laughs> uh, totally worth it, though. <laughs> yeah, no, it was amazing. Sound it sounds it to be fair. What's your favourite ice cream flavour, Tilly? Oof, I think it, that's a really tough one. I really vary. Depends on the the setting and where I am. Or well, paint the picture for us. Come on. Oh, well, there's actually I live in um, North Yorkshire, Lucy, uh, in a town called. Nairsborough, just next to Harrogate, yeah. Um, yeah. and there is a a shop on the river, and I have to say they do the nicest raspberry ripple I've ever Ooh. tasted because it actually has real raspberries kind of throughout mm. it. It's a real, it's a good one. But then, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I love chocolate. I love uh, like a cappuccino flavor, mm. pistachio. The, I mean, mm. it depends. All of it. <laughs> I, I can, it stresses me out going because I, I don't know what one to go with <laughs> do you think you get to a certain age where all of a sudden rum and raisin becomes relevant I've not got to that stage no yet. I mean you're a long way <laughs> from that stage but it just... I don't know no because I, th- I think I think you're either a rum and raisin person or you're not what do you think Lucy well I once made some Christmas pudding ice cream and it was absolutely delicious. Yeah, I can imagine that being good. But it was a bit of an invention on my part. I have an ice cream maker and I do 
I have a lot of fruit in the garden, so I do make quite a lot of either gelato or sorbet with the with the fruits. Mm. And I've made some pretty good ones. I make a I make a gooseberry and elderflower. That sounds good. Uh, Refreshing, really I bet. And yeah, and it's not yeah summer. I also do a really good blackcurrant sorbet, which is really really nice. That sounds delicious. But I'm not a fan of not a rum and raisin fan. But as I say, I had loads of Christmas pudding left over. And I whisked it up with um, with the eggs and the and the milk into a into a gelato and froze it. And it was absolutely bloody delicious. And we had it on Christmas. Yeah. On New Year's Eve, so it was um, a good way to use up the Christmas pudding. Bit yeah, very good way. In it. Anyway, <laughs> that's <laughs> why it would be so nice. <laughs> Before we end up just talking about food exclusively, I wanted to take you back, Lucy, because growing up um, in Blackheath. Reminds me, that's where I did my first ever focus group in a hotel in, in Blackheath. What advice would you have for any youngsters out there that are, that are getting into work, that are beginning their careers? Um, a career in insight or a career more generally? More generally, yeah. Anyway, take it any way you like. I personally think that it's really important to always keep an eye on the kind of purpose of what you're doing and to... Uh, you know, think, try and think strategically about the ultimate benefit of, of where you're going with what you're doing. And if you can't see it, then I think you've got a problem. So I think you need to be kind of, personally, I'm quite sort of purpose driven. So I feel that I need to know that there's going to be some ultimately positive outcome or I'm building to something or I'm contributing in some way. And that's important to me. That's kind of, you know, so it's all about, it's all about that for me, but you know, I, I I think it's very much about individuals, and you know, some people might have completely different motivations and reasons, and I understand that. And when you talked about growing up in the sixties and seventies, it made me wonder whether, if you were young again, would you want to be young now? Oh God, no! I definitely like being young when I was. I think it's horrible being young now. I think it's miserable. Why is that? Well, I think. I mean, I just think the obsession with image superficiality money being made out of hot air social media I mean I love social media don't get me wrong I'm you know I really like my Instagram feed but I can do that in the context of somebody who didn't have any computers until after I started work I had a typewriter right so you know and and so growing up in that environment I've learned to value proper sort of core thoughts and you know beliefs and not have to be distracted constantly by the louder noise and you know feeling quite I, I find the whole thing now very very distressing then the mental health mm. situation with young people and um I get quite annoyed with my daughters in a way because I feel like what they think is important the, the, what people think is important these days is, is quite different. And I think sometimes it's not quite the right thing. But um, I'm very glad that I grew up when I did because it was just I had so much freedom and, you know, I could be an individual and there was no, you know, do you remember those Lego ads from the 70s with, you know, the, girls at the time were not, in the 70s it was a good time to be a young girl because you weren't being told as you were in the earlier I mean, it wouldn't say the opportunities were there, but certainly it was a good time not to be classified and to be allowed to wear dungarees all day and 
I never wore a skirt till I was about 12. Mm. And, you know, I didn't have to think about my appearance or my image or any of that at all. And it was very liberating. Yeah. Yeah, I spoke to um, a teacher once and we were just chatting before we did the depth interview. And she said that um, she felt like one of her biggest challenges as somebody in education was was watching girls who were forthright, opinionated, creative, full of life and watching them as they approach sort of puberty and become young teenagers and watching all of that fall away as they start to have to conform to the social norms of what it is to be a young woman today. And her, she said like one of her big jobs as an educator was to try to make sure that they, they carried on in that vein and that they flourished like that rather than sort of just shutting themselves down, which obviously it's a generalization. But I know that you founded Women in Marketing, Lucy. So I'm sort of segueing into talking about that with, with, with that, that experience that she had. I wonder what you think about that. Especially because you've got two daughters that are in their 20s now. I think that in some ways it's worse because of all the stuff we were talking about just now. But in other ways, I feel that um, it is better because it's more out in the open and talked about. So I think it's great. When I first started working, it didn't occur to me that I wasn't being paid the same as the man doing the same job, right? It never occurred to me. And for most of my career, I discovered subsequently that I was being paid less than half in some cases than a man on my equivalent, um, in my equivalent position. And I was, I was completely shocked because I thought my mother and her generation had fought that battle. And so uh, I think it is incredibly difficult for young women. And I think it's in increasingly difficult in some ways. And I think, it, you know, that being uh, the social pressures and the sort of constant exposure to images that are ridiculous and are made up and are not real. From that point of view, you know, it's a lot worse. And I think it's very difficult to address that in the environment that we live in at the moment. However, I think that in some ways, as I say, I think it's slightly better because I think that at least the conversation is being had about things like equal pay. I'm just concerned that this, the younger generation at the moment seems to be more, more upset and involved with trans rights than they are with women's rights. Mm. And that is something that really, really concerns me because, you know, we're still looking at 50% of the population being discriminated against in vast areas. And yet um, they seem to be getting themselves in a ripe pickle over a tiny proportion of the population, which does need support. And I do agree that we don't want to discriminate against anybody. But at the same time, I think you've got to get your priorities right. And your priorities should be, um, you know, much more in terms of supporting women and feminism. So uh, when we started Women in Marketing Design, really, it was it was about getting a networking group so that we could make those connections that we saw men making and um, we would then be able to support each other in our career. So we, we, we started it up for that reason and it was very successful. I then stopped my involvement with that simply because I ended up getting pregnant and having children. So there's an irony there. Isn't there? <laughs> oh, yes, there is. <laughs> I was too busy with small children <laughs> and um, I then stopped being, you know, part of that, which is kind of like absolutely classic. But there you go. With everything that you've done and achieved so far in your career, what, what would you say is your proudest moment? Oh, gosh. There have been several. 
um, thank you. <laughs> I kind of would, I would have said, you know, starting keen as mustard because that's obviously, you know, wow, well done. I don't think it was starting it that was the proudest. I think it was getting through the first 10 years, mm. which I should have had a party because I was like, oh my God, it was so hard. It really, really was so hard. And and I'm very grateful that I have a very wonderful business partner who came in to the company about eight years ago now, I think. I can't remember. And made a huge difference to the kind of feelings of loneliness and isolation that you get running, running a business on your own. So that was a good moment. I'm also very proud when I was... Uh, I did a global rebrand for Research International when I was the marketing director there. And when the result of that was the CEO saying to me, it was, you know, and he was a very measured person who would never, he would never use superlatives. And, um, and he said it was, it exceeded his wildest expectations in terms of how the whole project had gone and the result of that. And that we had clients saying, if you take this much care of your brand, I think you're going to take really good care of my brand. And, you know, so that was a really good moment. And then there have been multiple ones since in terms of the kind of results and the impact of what we do. And that's all, every single one of those has been a, a kind of proud moment. So I, I try to keep a file of all the positive stuff so that if I'm feeling shit, I can go and look at it <laughs> and cheer myself up a bit. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask you for your advice for anybody starting a business because of course so many businesses struggle and, and fail but I think you've done it keep on file the things that are making you proud that are positive that are happy yeah. you reflect on those yeah. yeah it's a great one yeah I mean it's really important to keep your confidence and to keep your north star and you know stay on track and and be grounded keeping that purpose in mind like I said at the beginning, you know, for people starting out, keeping the broader purpose, why you're there, what you're doing it for, and to have a clear line of sight to that, I think is really, really important. Yeah. A great name as well, Lucy, can I say? Keena's Mustard. I, I absolutely love it. Thank you. We do get people applying for jobs saying, you know, things like, do I cut the mustard? <laughs> Am I mustard? And then, of course, I have to explain it to Colonel people. Mustard won't so, leave us alone. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> exactly. Because Americans don't get it. And I've when I founded the business, I wasn't really expecting to be working internationally. Yeah. I originally wanted the I just was thought mustard was a good name for a marketing company because mustard marketing, a bit of alliteration, mm -hmm. it's a good colour. It's about bringing out the flavour in different, you know, in different foods. So it's not about replacing the flavour, but, you know, enhancing it. And I thought that was mm -hmm. a really nice metaphor for uh, marketing. And then I couldn't get the URL which I got subsequently, but at the time I couldn't get it. So then I thought, oh, you know, is it, am I going to call it Cut the Mustard or Keener's Mustard? And Keener's Mustard obviously was a better a better choice. But I go to America a lot and I work with a lot of American clients. And, and other than a sort of few small pockets on the East Coast in sort of places like Massachusetts, nobody knows what Keener's Mustard is or means, <laughs> um, which is great because then I have the opportunity to explain it. Yeah. And, of course, Americans, Americans love a bit of, social history and when I go back to sort of you know I say well it was first used in 1640 and it's you know time of the spice trade and people were talking about spices a lot and mustard being something that was really really keen and used to describe a person as being their very mustard and that meant they were brilliant and enthusiastic and you know energetic and I thought perfect name for a company and the Americans bloody love it and they never forget it no one ever forgets it so I think it passes the test for for a good company name 
Yeah. I'm not sure I thought it through at the time, but um, clearly it, it, it works. <laughs> oh, definitely. I, you don't forget it, do you? And like you say, when you can bring that story to life of where it originates from and how you can kind of weave it into to your own personal business, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Tilly, what's your favourite mustard? I think it has to be Dijon mustard for me. I think I add it to my cauliflower cheese on a Sunday and it really does mm. make... It, I don't know how it's possible, but it makes it more cheesy. <laughs> I think you're right on Dijon because I think that it sits in between like the milder kind of maybe a little bit boring, but it isn't as powerful mm. as some of the other mustards. I mean, I feel bad growing up in Norfolk that I'm not just going straight down the line for Coleman's, mm-hmm. but it's a bit much for me. Mm. So I'll, I'll come down to a Dijon. A Dijon's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. And I also love a, a horseradish and a, and a wasabi as well. It's... Mm. But it's, I think there's a time and a place. But yeah, Dijon for consistency for me. What about yourself, Lucy? Well, I have to say, I, I kind of we have three different levels of retainer a few years ago, and we had French's, which is the kind of American, slightly tasteless mustard, if it's possible to have such a thing. Yeah. And we had Coleman's in the middle, and we had Grey Poupon. Oh. It's <laughs> 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 the rapper's delight. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm quite keen on, uh, I'm afraid I'm quite going for the grey people. But I also like wasabi. I quite like it hot. Yeah. So um, I'm quite uh, Where it burn, burns your nose almost. Yeah, it's right <laughs> up into your nose. If you don't cry, it's not you're not doing yeah, it properly. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's true, it's true. <laughs> it's got to cleanse your whole brain out. Yeah. And I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm quite like a strong one. We've talked, Lucy, about all your various successes, but let's hear about when it all went wrong. Can you tell us about a situation where it just, it could have been better for you? (laughs) There's quite a lot. (laughs) A bit like the proud moments. I was actually just thinking about this earlier and I I had a really bad moment last week, which was, um, I was on the way to a client meeting in Oregon to run a workshop and for the first time in my life, and I do travel quite a lot, and as I say, I'd rather do it on a train, but you can't really get to Oregon on a train very easily. Um, <laughs> I was on the way to the airport and the Heathrow Express broke with oh. me on it. Oh, no. And I was trapped on the train for an hour and a half with no electricity. So I couldn't even have a pee because they'd locked the loos and there was no power to open the doors. And I actually missed my flight which has never happened to me before uh luckily because i'm very um concerned about these things even though i've never missed a flight before i was a day early so i always go a day early to things and so i had an extra day to play with which wasn't much fun but i had to get an uh, i had to get a flight to seattle and get a connecting flight and you know the following day the following morning and it was extremely distressing but i got there so i mean that was a bad moment. I think the very first time I went and did a presentation, and I don't think my boss realised that I hadn't done one before. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a freelancer, if you work in freelance sort of journalism and strategy, you don't do presentations. It just doesn't come up. And I joined Research International and I was asked to go and present to the group management conference, which was a collection of all the managing directors and CEOs of the companies that we owned around the world. And I was, it was really important that I should do a really good job and I should, you know. So no pressure myself. at all. 
<laughs> no pressure at all, exactly. And I've literally never done a presentation. And uh well not, you know, not in front of a big audience. And I I literally I was throwing up all morning before I had to go and do oh it. So I was absolutely terrified. But interestingly enough, once I got on stage and I had my material and I knew my material, I then actually loved it. And I realized that it was something that I really wanted to do. So ever since then, I, you can't get me off a stage. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, do you and is it something that you enjoy? Do you do you still have those kind of nerves before you present? Or? I do have some nerves, and I think if you don't, there's something wrong with you. I think you might be a psychopath. Definitely. Um, but, um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure of the definition, but I think it's in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I do get nervous, and I think that's a good thing. But having said that, I'm always super well prepared. So I always rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And so I feel that inner confidence. And I, I generally really enjoy it. And I love doing different, you know, going to different places and you know, talking to people and different conferences and stuff. I do very much enjoy that. It's really reassuring for someone like me to hear somebody like you talk about getting places early, <laughs> feeling a bit nervous, doing the prep so that things go well. Mm. because those are often the things that I think we're told that sort of successful and talented people don't need to do. Mm. You know, they sort of just rock up and, they, they, you know, things just happen and they're brilliant. So it's, I think it's for all you worriers out there, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, being prepared and being a bit early and, and taking care of the, the simple things in order to do the more complicated things, I think is a really good, good message. Yeah. And I think on that, yeah. that nervousness point, I think you're right. I think it's good to be feeling something before you perform, inverted commas. And I think that it isn't necessarily nerves. It might be that you're just getting in the zone, you know, and you're just sort of focusing yeah. and shutting out other things and just concentrating on the whatever it is you're going to do, you know? Yeah. I just would like to know, Lucy, what, what kind of things do you have um, planned next, uh, be that in your career or... Or outside, I know. Obviously, you've mentioned that you you make ice cream, you you grow fruit, you grow your own veg, you run your own business, you judge awards. I mean, if you've got time to do anything else, that is. Yeah, I've always been very organised. So I think that's you know, to to your point just now, Rich. I think you know, getting buttoned down is really really important, and I, I think that's the only way I can keep it keep my sanity. Mm -hmm. Having said that. We're looking into trying to work out ways of house swapping and going to live somewhere else for a bit and maybe work from there. Um, we have friends who do um, house sitting. Mm -hmm. It's a really great way. You don't pay anything yep. to go and live in someone's house and look after their animals. You know, I like animals, so that's good. And, you know, there's lots of opportunity to go to places and live somewhere different and I think my husband would like that I think he's kind of he's a bit older than me and so he's kind of semi-retired already he very much wants to go and do that so we but I would are you thinking in the in the UK or abroad or no no, no there's no point in going to the UK because I live in other than North Yorkshire I live in the best bit of the UK mm. so um I wouldn't <laughs> I mean uh, I a lot all my family are in Yorkshire. well if you want to look after two dogs Lucy that mine are, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to. There's two in North Yorkshire well, waiting for you. in Hemsley and um, my grandparents were in, we used to live in, in Lockton near Pickering. And oh, lovely. So I spent a lot of time as a child up on the North York Moors. Very nice. But yeah, so um, no, I mean, principally somewhere warm, both 
my husband and I like a bit of like a bit of sunshine. So um, I would very much like to go somewhere warmer and spend a few months hanging around there, yeah. as well as obviously fixing up my finishing working on my garden, which is obviously never going to be finished because it's a complete, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> like trying to climb a rock face or absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and uh, the house as well which is um i live in an old vicarage oh wow a regency vicarage in somerset and it leaks <laughs> all the time <laughs> but i bet it's beautiful though well i was more interested in whether it was haunted or not no this one isn't but my parents house in south somerset was Really? And um, they, my mother went out for a dinner once and sat next to a, a, a chap, and she's from Somerset, her, she, her family from Bath for years. Anyway, she sat next to somebody at dinner, having just bought a house and just being about to move out of London back to Somerset. And she, he said, oh, I know Somerset, where have you bought a house? And she said, oh, we've bought um, a house in a little village called North Cheriton. And he literally said, you haven't bought the manor, have you? and he said well you do know it's haunted don't you and it wasn't a very nasty ghost but i he there was a man sitting at a desk with a quill pen writing oh really he would he would you and see him hear the the quill pen i never saw him i had people who were swore blind that they'd seen him but I heard the pen. Did your mum ever see him? No. Just hear the pen? I just heard the pen and various other people who slept in the bit of the house that I slept in also said they'd seen him and heard the pen. And there was definitely a presence in that bit of the house. Not the bit where my parents slept, but the bit, the sort of, what was the back? I mean, basically, there'd been a house on the site. It was in the Doomsday Book. So it went back quite a long way. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a house there for obviously, you know, more than a thousand years. So it was um, inevitable there was going to be some some spirit activity hanging around, I think. There was a lot of history. Yeah, so much history. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so no, our house is absolutely not haunted. It was built in 1931. <laughs> so it's far too modern. <laughs> oh, it sounds delightful, though. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. Lucy, if you could say thank you or sorry to someone, who would it be and uh, what would you say? I'm not going to say sorry. No, nope, that's fine. <laughs> Remember, um, folks, never apologise, never look back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> moving forward, moving forward. No, never I admit you were wrong. I say thank you to my father, who was a very successful business person and um, who was a, an accountant, but that kind of rather belittles his his achievements and um, he gave me lots of really good advice and provided me with a really good role model for how to behave in business and the specific thing he said to me which is something that resonated with me is always make friends with the finance director and finance and budgets it's communication and that is what that is about. It's not about the actual numbers and the money. It's about communication. And actually most of the finance, most finance is about communication and it's not about the actual numbers, which is really, really interesting because um, that then translates into an insights environment is really about how you communicate 
with what you have in terms of your data or your insights is more important than actually the thing itself. So I would be like to thank him. He died quite recently. So it would be nice to do that. I think I thanked him at the time. I don't think he was, I don't think he thought I wasn't, I don't think he thought it was ungrateful. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. It sounds like a, a great piece of advice that I think we all could use as well. Yeah. So thank you to your father. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And thank you to you, Lucy. So yeah. thank you ever so much. That was brilliant. We really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Well, as ever, we must say a massive thank you to Lucy for joining us. And whether it was ice cream, championing women, train rides in Italy, haunted houses, it was an incredible experience speaking to her, as it always is when you speak to people in Insight. Take care. Ciao.